On your handout, you'll notice that we are in lesson four of uh, this study on James. We're going to look at 13 verses in James chapter two. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter two. I'd like to begin first just by reading this so you get a flavor for the flow of it, beginning in verse one down through verse 13. It says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in a filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and becomes judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do com commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, we turn the corner in this epistle of James, and the introductory thoughts we looked at the previous three weeks now is giving us some concrete examples of what maturity looks like. And the first thing that James does is he centers on the idea of favoritism, and he has already kind of completed a a general discussion, if we lack wisdom, let us ask of God, those type of things. This idea is of economic favoritism. It's not necessarily um, having something to do with uh, favoring some people over others because you like them more. It has some real economic ramifications to it. And this, I think, goes along with uh, a lot of the different things that Jesus spoke about when he talked about money. And you'll see on your handout there, I put a person or community's approach to Monday, money is a window into their spirituality, something Jesus also taught. And you'll notice I've selected several passages there out of the synoptic gospels. Um, I'm not going to look at all of those, but I do want to kind of get a feel for the teaching of Jesus by looking at one of them. So if you have a Bible, turn over to Mark chapter 10, and there's this exchange that is going on between a rich young man and Jesus. 
And in chapter 10 of Mark, beginning of verse 17 down through verse 31, so it's a fairly lengthy passage of scripture, um, Jesus is going to be talking about how hard it is sometimes for individuals who are well off not to show favoritism or how difficult it is for them to uh, become mature disciples. And that is kind of the subject matter in James. So again, we have this relationship between the teachings of Jesus and uh, his half-brother James. But if you look at verse 17, it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't get false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's a great line. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's stop there for a second. This is not talking about whether the man is going to heaven after he dies. He's talking about the dynamic we started talking about on Sunday morning, the dynamic of the kingdom of God uh, being among us and within us and uh, being able to experience the joy and happiness that life has to offer. It seems this young man seems to have fallen short because he says, what is it I'm still lacking? Uh, and Jesus looks around at his disciples, verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said, children, uh, said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter raises an objection and says, we have left everything to follow you. And I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, he adds that, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So this interesting exchange between this rich young man and Jesus kind of sets up what G, uh, James is going to talk about. It seems that privilege and prosperity uh, has its own pitfalls. And in this case here, the young man couldn't give up that in a very unique set setting like Peter and the other disciples to become a follower of Jesus in his earthly ministry. But he says it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason being is because the kingdom of God is uh, not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that on Sunday morning a little bit. So this is just one example of Jesus teaching on money, the difficulty of handling money properly, 
the hold that money can have upon our soul, uh, those type of things. So I think that's an important backdrop to think about when we come to James chapter two, because one of the things that can happen with privilege and prosperity is uh, the refusal to take care of other people that are on a lower social status. And James calls that favoritism. And uh, he becomes very forthright about how God feels about favoritism because uh, several times uh, in the New Testament, we're told that, that God does not show favoritism. So uh, having said that, concern for uh, those that are less fortunate is a hallmark of discipleship. So go on back to James chapter two for a moment. And um, James is going to elaborate this point here when he is talking about um, this idea of economic favoritism and uh, what can take place in the midst of those types of situations. So James elaborates on something he introduced in chapter 1, verse 27, when he said to um, his readers here, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So this issue of money, possessions, the hold that it has upon us um, is something that he he quickly touches upon in verse 27 of chapter one, and he'll return to it again in chapter five, verses one through six. And we'll get to that in due time in this Wednesday night study. So that's my introduction to this study tonight. Do you have some thoughts, um, questions that you have before we look at the verses themselves? Let me throw a question out. When James talks about favoritism, what is favoritism? How would you define favoritism? Before we look at the verses, uh, what comes to mind when you hear the word favoritism? Okay someone or something you like better than something else. Okay. All right. Any other ideas? I think in this context, it's talking about kissing up to somebody. Mm -hmm. Okay. In this case here, maybe using other people um, as a way to protect your possessions or privileges, that type of thing. Um, so favoritism is showing uh, more honor towards someone so that you can kind of hold on to what, you know, what you want or have. That might be something that plays into this. Any other thoughts? Okay, so let's go on into the verses themselves and let's tease it out a little bit. Um, it's interesting that this word uh, that is used for favoritism here uh, is found several other places in the New Testament. Um, in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, uh, it says that God does not show favoritism or God does not play favorites by exalting uh, one over another. And yet, 
we'll come back to this in a moment when we get to that slide. It does seem as though at times God does show some favoritism by his calling upon certain people. I'll come back to that, but I want to kind of plant that as a seed in your head for a moment. So James' point here is pretty straightforward. We shouldn't show favoritism because God doesn't show favoritism. Um, in other words, impartiality is part of the very character of God. So you have two, three, or 10 people standing in front of God, and he doesn't favor one over the other um, because that's a part of his character. Um, favoritism, it seems, is contrary to what God values by looking at a person and seeing in them the very image of God that, uh, that they are created in. So maybe our tendency is not to see each other on the same level as human beings, although God sees us that way. We tend to at times um, prioritize certain people, uh, or I use the term here, stratified a category, putting individuals in certain stratified categories. So you think of celebrities, you think of athletes, you think of certain politicians, um, and they get exalted because of their position in society. People look up to them. Uh, teenage girls uh, will put posters maybe on their wall of them or whatever it may be. Um, uh, men will wear the jerseys of certain ball players with their names on the back. So there's, there's this tendency at times to elevate certain people by the way they look or what they do, what they've accomplished, um, maybe what they possess. And you'll notice here on the slide, a lot of times, um, elevating people or lowering people in our perspective is built upon things like looks, wardrobe, uh, possessions, sometimes personality, outgoing personality versus introverts that uh, seem to get more attention. Um, but I think what we have noticed a lot is sometimes this is built upon race, ethnicity, the ability to um, work well within a system. By that, I mean being able to speak uh, the language of uh, the common, you know, marketplace language that people use to buy, sell, uh, and get around, that type of thing. So it's interesting when we see certain people, see what they wear or how they look, how well uh, kept they are, that type of thing. It's easy sometimes for human beings to elevate or lower them in our uh, perspective. So maybe favoritism is a sin because it's uh, being disrespectful toward other people who are made in the image of God, who are of great value to God. Uh, and so favoritism, though, while it's an attitude, can often lead to an action. And favoritism can lead to discrimination and in the worst case scenario, it can lead to a violation of human rights as well. So, um, you know, this struggle has gone on for, you know, since mankind came, came into, into existence. 
but certain eras, I think, highlight this favoritism and discrimination in various ways. And of course, you know what that looks like. I mean, there's a lot of discussion uh, about how people are treated uh, based upon their race and so forth. Uh, and I'm going to give you some examples of that here in a little bit. But verse one basically says, uh, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, uh, must not show favoritism. So that's the commandment line, that is, don't show favoritism. So he's going to tease it out. And so what he's going to do in verses two through four is give to us a hypothetical example of how favoritism works. And so what he's going to do is imagine that two people are entering into an assembly, and in the assembly, it is, um, it, it is there that one is treated favorably and the other is not treated so well. So look at verse two, it says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. So there have been a couple of a di a different occasions during my tenure as a pastor where individuals have kind of entered into a church service. Uh, they're a bit gruff. They're a bit dirty. Uh, sometimes they're a bit uh, smelly even at times. And it's amazing that radar that goes up by other people around them, that these are people that can't be trusted. Uh, better keep an eye on them. Uh, you know, how's the kids down in the kids' ministry? Uh, better keep an eye on my purse because, you know, that type of thing. And that's a judgment that is often made simply based on outward appearances. And here we have that same thing going on. So a guy enters in, he's wearing, he's wearing a nice suit. He's uh, wearing nice jewelry. And then a poor man who's in old clothes also comes in. Now, the point of the example is in verse three. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the um, individual that has the worn out clothing, dirty clothing, those type of things, um, they are put in a place where they can't be seen. Sit on the floor, sit in the back, that type of thing. Um, and a lot of times, you, you know, they're are certain individuals that, oh, I don't feel comfortable around that individual because they look this way or sound that way and that type of thing. And that's the example of favoritism that James is showing. And he will give a, an ironic statement in verse five, but before we get there in verse four, he says, have you not discriminated among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So, at the heart of this is the way we think. It's the way we look at other people. Um, and what we find is that this is very hard for us to break. And we have certain prejudices inside of us. 
that cause us to look through a lens. And we make judgment on other people based upon our life experience, uh, our upbringing, uh, what values have been placed inside of us, usually at a fairly young age, and um, how, that, how that plays out on a regular basis. But I think what James is saying is, you can be mistaken in your judgment by merely looking at the outward. So we've all heard this cliche, you can't judge a book by its cover. So I have two Bibles here, and this one I've had a long time, okay? You can see it's kind of fallen apart, and I love it because uh, it's a larger print. It's not a study Bible that has notes and cross-references and stuff, but it's really in bad shape, and, um, and so I saw something come across Facebook that there are certain companies that will rebind Bibles and stuff like that, so I sent, a, I sent um, an email just curious about what it would cost to get this rebound because I like it because I've got markings. All of us have the way, our own way of circling certain things or highlighting certain things. So I get an email back and uh, it, it was like $160 to rebind it. You know, I, I go, I go, yeah, it doesn't have to look that good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, they make all kinds of different designs of duct tape now, right? Yeah. So anyways, but that you can, you can look at a book and it's worn out like this. It's scruffy and stuff like that. But you can't make a judgment of what's inside based on the outside. And so in a very real way, that's what this is getting at as well. Um, that when you look at the outward, you might be making a mistake in making a judgment upon another person based upon certain things. So what are some of the things that we use to make prejudgments on people? People that have certain piercings, people who have tattoos, uh, people that wear clothing that you feel is a bit out there, uh, people that like to dress in goth clothing, it's all black, you know, that type of thing. And yet at the same time, what you find is when you get to know other people, some of the nicest individuals are people that you might initially reject or prejudge. And so life experience tells us to look beyond the outward. And that's where he's going to go in verse five. Any thoughts? that you have on this slide. So in verse three, let's double back there. If you show special attention. Um, now, I mentioned a moment ago that although it says God does not show favoritism, there are times um, where he will exalt certain individuals. So uh, I'm going to show you one of them. This is a fairly famous one. It's uh, Mary. And in Luke chapter one, the birth narrative of Luke, in verse 48, this particular passage where Mary is uh, telling us of, of 
her position as the one to carry the Christ child. It says in, um, I'll start in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. In other words, God chose me for this special assignment to bring the Christ child into the world. So God doesn't show favoritism, and yet there are special callings upon certain individuals like Mary. So you got to kind of you, you got to kind of work with that a little bit. Um, and how do you reconcile those two things that God does show some favoritism? He chose Mary over other women to bring Christ into the world. Um, and this is a big topic here. How does this square with certain theological systems, especially Calvinism, that says that takes certain passages of scripture and says God predestines, he chooses certain individuals. And in that case, it's a pretty, it is, it's a pretty um, valuable selection because these are the elect and these are individuals that God has chosen for eternal life while he rejects other people. I don't, I don't ascribe to that, but that is a the, uh, theological system that God chooses certain people and he rejects other people. Um, and then there's certain passages like in Romans 9, where it says, uh, God says, Jacob have I chosen, um, but uh, Esau I have rejected, or, you know, e uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So what do you do with those passages of scripture that seem to say something a little bit different than what James is saying right here, that God doesn't show favoritism? What do you do with that? Well, you got to wrestle with it a little bit. And, and I think you have to probably make a distinction at times between the difference between being chosen because of who you are or some special status versus um, being chosen for a special assignment. In other words, a certain gifting or something. So a lot of times you don't hear it as much anymore, but um, at one time uh, on ordination councils of pastors, a, a pastor had to show that they were called by God to enter into the ministry, that they had to have some type of special uh, selection by God to become a pastor. I don't think that's probably as true today as it was 35, 40 years ago. But nonetheless, um, you see how it plays out a little bit where sometimes this whole idea of favoritism can creep into theological systems and it depends upon what passage is being used. So I guess you need to make a distinction. Here's what I'm saying, long way around this. You need to make a distinction between God selecting certain things or certain people for certain assignments versus putting his favoritism uh, upon certain people simply because he likes them more than another person.
Okay, does that make sense? Can Don, I ask a, yeah, go ahead. What about the exact opposite? Like, I always felt poor Judas got a bit the short end of the stick. Mm -hmm. it, in uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Um, what well, Judas was, you know, if you believe in predestination, Judas from the beginning of time was destined to betray Christ. Mm -hmm. And that just, you know, you could say God chose him to do that. God yeah. showed, instead of showing favoritism like he did with, you know, if you're using that with Mary, then poor Judas was shown just the opposite. You're making a good point. Let me phrase it a different way. Okay. <laughs> um, if you believe in predestination, you also have to believe in double predestination. And that is some are chosen and some are rejected. So some are predestined for one thing, some are predestined for the other. So a lot of times in theological discussions, um, the thought is, oh no, God just, it's his prerogative to choose certain people that he wants to. He just leaves other people alone, but it really doesn't work out that way. And that's what you're getting at, Shelley. Uh -huh. is, is that if Mary is chosen, but, but Judas is not, well, he is chosen because of what he did in betraying Christ. So in some ways, they're both predestined one to some, one thing, one to another. And if that is the case, here's why I don't ascribe to Calvinism. Yeah. Then how can you hold that person responsible for that which they have been predestined to do? That is, yeah. they don't have a choice in the matter. So um, I think free will plays into this. And I think the other end of that is... Um, that was just kind of the perspective of, of the people of the day that we're talking about uh, in certain situations. So there are individuals that thought there are some that are selected like Mary for privilege and others like Judas, well, they're selected. Is that, is that a true theological concept or is that Kind of the framing of the way they thought at the time, and it, it's reflected in how it comes out in the statements that they make. So I kind of think there's some of that going on as well. But anyway, I, um, I almost think that, well, I know Judas regretted what he did, um, yeah. but does that qualify? for confessing in sin my feeling is um he had a sorrow in his heart that led to his suicide that in his despair yeah. um in his despair for the decision he made and ironically it's because of money he sold them out for 30 pieces of right soap. and and because jesus didn't carry out the agenda of you know, conquering the Romans. But um, I think his very sorrow 
and his repentance of what he did led him to such a place of despair that that's why he took his life, that he couldn't live with the guilt of the rest of his life of what he had done to Christ. Okay. And, and, uh, and I, I'll tell you, I can't think of a, a better example of someone who is sorry for what they did th than that. You know, that's yeah. kind of how I see it. But, right. Okay, so, thank you. Yeah. So here's a, a question on, at the bottom of the slide there. Is there still a place for honoring a person who has served faithfully or provide more attention and help to a person with special needs? In other words, if you're not to show favoritism, does that mean we should throw benevolence out the window and helping people that um, are in need? Or uh, should we not honor certain benchmarks? In other words, certain anniversaries or achievements. Um, so, you know, for years, we always brought high school and college uh, graduates up front uh, at church and, and gave them a book or something and honored them because of something that they achieved. Uh, is that it? Is this in violation of those type of activities, do you think? No. Why not? Because it's not, maybe it's not just the attention. It's the advantage that comes from the attention, don't you think? No. That's not what I'm talking about. Recognizing someone's accomplishment is encouraging. Yeah, I agree. I don't have a bad recognition. I see that as encouragement. Yeah. No, that's not what I was talking about, Brenda. What I was talking about was. When certain special attention gets people an advantage and put, put aside the idea of giving applause and congratulations to someone who just graduated, I, I was kind of done with that example. What I'm talking about is if, if there are certain situations where um, because you can get an advantage, you give an advantage. In other words, um, hey, you know, I got tickets to the Cavs game and I can get you down into the locker room if, you know, it's all buttering somebody up and you're showing favoritism to a, a person because there is a loop back to something that you're going to get in the process. That's kind of, I, I kind of think that's at the heart here of a lot of what James is getting, is getting at, is showing favoritism because it's going to put you in a position where you're going to be favored in return or you're going to, you know, so that's how I distinguish. I think we should give recognition to high school graduates and, and college graduates and other people who make wonderful achievements as long as my showing them favoritism is not a way for me to gain some type of an advantage 
Yeah. No, I don't think so. Why do real citizens have a box at the stadium? Because they say high end clients, right? High end clients will then in turn, right? But you bring up a great point. Okay, so I know you guys online couldn't hear what Brenda was Brenda was saying. So let's say a real estate company has box seats or um, a suite at the stadium, and of course they're going to bring clients in and entertain them in the suite, that type of thing, because they are in hope of gaining business uh, from the people that they are entertaining. So there's going to show some favoritism to potential clients by bringing them into a suite and providing food and watching the game, that type of thing. So that that's a business, um, I don't want to use the word tactic, but it's kind of a, a, a business design of some sort that people will use. Maybe, though, if we tease this out a little bit more, um, when was the last time someone who couldn't get couldn't give you business back? Perhaps they're poor. They can't afford uh, what you're selling. When was the last time that person had that privilege to be in a suite to watch a game? Are you, are you following what I'm saying? So sometimes what happens is privilege is provided because there's some type of payback in the process. Okay, so I think what James is talking about here, he's talking about an assembly. So I'm assuming this is a synagogue setting, okay? Because it's early in the New Testament. So two types of people walk in, guy with fine clothing and jewelry, and you're showing him favoritism. Why is that? Well, a lot of times this happens in church assembly because those, those people are potential big givers, you know? But isn't it fascinating that Jesus, when he sees a widow making her offering, he exalts her because she gives her very last penny type thing, okay? They gave out of their resources. She gave everything type thing, Jesus said. So I've, we've gone kind of around in a circle here, everything from a theological type of perspective to a very practical perspective. And that is, do we look at people only as potential favors in return? Of, and I think that's what James probably has in mind. When we treat people a certain way so that we can get favors in return. And that gets a little bit tricky at times. Uh, but it it is something that when you have an assembly where rich and poor can gather in the same assembly and they are equally treated, they're equally honored uh, and respected, well, that's great because you're not playing favorites toward the one versus the other. Does that make sense? Any thoughts? 
So the way he summarizes it is evil thoughts. Now, I find that an interesting statement here. Verse four, um, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Um, it's fascinating that this isn't pure, this isn't pure motivation, is it? The evil thoughts kind of suggest there's some type of dark motivation uh, behind it. And um, that can then sometimes turn into, as I put here, a reasoned decision um, on how you're going to treat that uh, individual. So in other words, if this, if this grouping of people can't provide me with something, well, then I'm going to look down upon them and I'm not going to treat them well. And maybe the evil thoughts continues to develop so that it becomes kind of systemic. So that's why I've listed some of these things here. How does this verse of discrimination and favoritism relate to things like white privilege, uh, the whole race baiting issue, um, inequities based upon race or even gender in the workplace? Um, how about what's on the right now in the news? The effort to limit voting access because of certain types of people where they are on the economic level or, or who they are racially or potentially tilting the scales to favor the rich, that type of thing. So I ran across a short two minute little video. We'll see if it'll work. Um, and I'm gonna show it to you now. I think it pertains here to this subject matter in, in the case of how favoritism can move beyond a personal thing to something that becomes public. Let's take a look at it. What's the problem with the economy? Let me connect the dots and show you the big picture in less than two minutes, 15 seconds. Dot one. Since 1980, the American economy has doubled in size. But adjusting for inflation, most people's wages have barely increased. Second dot. Where did all that money go? Almost all the gains have gone to the super rich. The top 1% used to take home about 10% of total income. Now it takes home more than 20%. And the super rich have 40% of the nation's entire wealth. The third dot. All this money at the top has given the super rich lots of political power, especially power to lower their tax rates. Before 1980, the top tax rate was over 70%. Now it's down to 35%. And much of their income is capital gains, subject to only a 15% tax. According to the IRS, the richest 400 Americans pay only 17%. Fourth dot. This means huge budget deficits. Tax revenues are down to less than 15% of the total economy, the lowest in 60 years. So public services are being cut at all levels of government. Our kids are being crowded into classrooms with more and more other children. Roads, bridges, levees, healthcare, safety nets, they're all being sacrificed. The fifth dot, 
Instead of joining together for better wages and jobs, many people are so scared that they're competing with other working people for the scraps that are left behind. So we get union versus non-union, public employee versus private, native-born versus immigrants. Final dot. The vast middle class, unable to borrow as it could before, no longer has the purchasing power needed to get the economy growing again, which means continued high unemployment and an anemic recovery. So you see the big picture? The only way we can have a strong economy is with a strong middle class. So he uh, gives kind of a, a quick, simplistic summary, but political action is responsible for the. So if there is favoritism mm -hmm. toward one group at at the expense of another, it causes all kinds of problems, basically. So this is when it's more than personal, it can become a public or a systemic problem as well. Now, that video was a bit dated, uh, several years old. Uh, obviously, it was pre-pandemic. Uh, it was several years um, past the um, 2008 recession. But um, I think some of the main points is if favoritism is shown, then how how does that affect the rest of people? And that I thought he did a pretty good uh, illustration. That's all that was, was an illustration. I'm sure the numbers are not exactly the same today as it was in that video. But it's a good illustration of if there's favoritism and it becomes systemic in certain ways, then uh, it's easy then to be exploited. And that's where he's going next. Take a look here. As you look in verse five down through verse 13, James, uh, he just doesn't hold back. I mean, he really lays it out here. He considers uh, the rich holding power, possessions, and privilege over the head of the poor as something that is foolish, unlawful, and unmerciful. And so that's what he's going to talk about here. So in verses five through seven, he says it's foolish. Now, the reason that it's foolish is a lot like what we just saw in the video. It has ramifications uh, that are larger than just personal. Uh, so let's reread verse five through seven. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So he talks about the poor being rich. They are rich in faith and they're going to receive the kingdom. Um, but it's interesting that uh, while they have their reward that is coming, they live with some suffering along the way. Um, you'll notice a few of the subpoints here. Faith here refers not to conversion, uh, but trusting God in the midst of daily life. And while not all poor believers are strong in faith necessarily, 
all things being equal, a poor believer will have a stronger faith sometimes because they've struggled through adversity uh, and they come out the other side. So if faith is like a muscle, they have exercised their need to trust God more and they've gotten stronger. Financially poor people have had to trust God more for food and work and housing, et cetera. So um, the foolish part of all though, of this though, is how the rich are not satisfied and they end up exploiting the poor. That's the word that is used here. Um, exploiting the poor is found in verse six, you'll notice, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? That is um, a reference back to the way Egypt was using the nation of Israel in Amos 8, 4. Uh, the same idea is used in the LXX, which is the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, for trampling down the poor, impoverishing them through fraudulent business practices, and then buying them back as slaves when they become indebted. So one of the ways the rich in James' idea here oppresses the poor is through the court system. The poor don't stand a chance uh, in the court system. Uh, the rich can exercise influence and power, and they can gain an advantage simply because they have more, where the poor are at the mercy of the judge uh, or jury, for that matter. So um, it, it's a pretty dark paragraph. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones that are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Um, now, not every individual fits this description. James, I think, is talking about tendencies here that can happen. And uh, where there's not mutual respect and a sense of trying to treat people fairly, uh, it can become systemic in nature and it can become so powerful that it gains such momentum that it is very, very difficult to reverse. You take things like our healthcare system and that type of thing where, um, you know, gosh, sometimes people who can't afford it, you know, they are denied services at times because they can't afford it. That shouldn't be, uh, you know, that type of thing. So, um, so I think what James is trying to say here is one of the ways the rich oppress the poor is using who they know, what they have, and how they can use it to their own advantage. So that's just foolish because it has an overall impact upon life in general, not just individuals, but society as well. Um, it's interesting that James says, these individuals are blaspheming the noble name of God when they do that. Uh, I think he might have in mind maybe Isaiah 52 verses 4 and 5, nation of Israel is being oppressed, and as a result, God's name is being blasphemed among the nations because the Gentiles are concluding that belief in God is useless because God is not protecting and defending those that are poor. Uh, so maybe the world says favoring the rich will get you influence or power or access to great resources. 
But James, I think, is saying it's foolish to favor the rich because they're not rich in faith. Notice the contrast there. They might be rich in their pocket, but they're not rich in faith. And um, it's there that they receive a lot of the, uh, the strength and resource that's needed to get us through this world. That is God's enabling grace uh, is found among the poor many times because they have to trust God. Thoughts there? Secondly, he talks about it being unlawful. Now, what I mean by that is he begins to go back into uh, the, the law, uh, the Mosaic law. He gives two examples, do not murder, do not commit adultery. But he then says there is a law that trumps the Mosaic law, and he calls it the royal law in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law, what is that, James? Love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing what is right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you are convicted by the law's lawbreakers. Now, maybe what James has in mind here is so much of the Old Testament uh, talks about fair business practices toward people, um, talks about taking care of the poor, whether it's a farmer leaving the edges of the field for the poor to glean, that type of thing. Um, but if you show favoritism, you're a lawbreaker. Then he says something that uh, is is quite poignant here for whoever keeps the, uh, the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So a lot of times um, over the years, I've heard people say, well, if, if a person says, well, I'm a good person, this verse is used, yeah, but have you ever sinned? You know, well, then you're guilty of everything. I don't think, I don't think that's the point James is making here. Um, the point that he is making here is you are guilty of breaking the whole law because you, um, are not, you are not incorporating into the laws that are needed for a civil society the royal law, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't love, then you basically ruin what the rest of the law provides, and that is you know, level, a level footing for people, you know, fairness and all that type of thing. So um, I don't think this is a theological statement as much as it is a practical statement that maybe what's ringing in James' ear is Jesus when he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, there's an internal motivation that has to accompany this external set of rules. That makes sense. So James, interestingly enough, mentions the tendency that we all have to want to keep certain laws and maybe ignore other ones. Have you noticed that a lot of times? Um, we're always quick to point out somebody else's fault, but we're quick to overlook our own a lot. So um, to clarify, James is reminding his readers that to pick and choose is to be guilty of unlawfulness. That's not what the law is for. The law is to help us to love. That's really the bottom line. 
And I think that's a point that we often miss out of the Old Testament. Again, when we use this idea that you got to keep the law to find favor with God, then, you know, the law somehow becomes a ladder to reach God. Eh, maybe the law is more about how to structure a society where there's mutual respect and where the royal law is also brought into that. There's the potential then to live in harmony and peace that many times uh, we don't seem to be able to achieve in this world. And the two examples he uses are adultery and murder as examples of unlawfulness, because I think probably those two things probably hurt other people the most. And, um, and so any thoughts there? Okay, one more. In verses 12 and 13, he talks about mercy, and he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Maybe James is insisting that we'll all give an account before God as to the way we've treated other people, and um, maybe this is, again, the words of Jesus kind of in his ear, where um, Jesus talks a lot about the merciless treatment of people who do not have the advantages that maybe we do. So God shows mercy to the poor and the needy without any thought of being repaid. That's why it's such an act of love. And um, this whole idea of, um, you know, a quick pro quid pro quo, um, you know, doing certain things, certain ways in hopes of favors that are in return, lacks element of love that is needed to live in harmony with each other. So the last thing I have for today is um, maybe James is talking a little bit about how we treat those who don't have the advantages that we do. And that's everyone really in many respects, who at least live comfortably in the United States, we, you know, we have so many more advantages to people who live in other parts of the world and even other people who live in parts of our own cities. So um, I just put this for consideration as our last thoughts for tonight. What are some ways we can do a better job of embracing the poor um, what are some of the challenges that we might face in this endeavor? Um, who can we partner with at times to help assist the poor? Um, I do want to remind you that we have a nice resource in our own backyard in Willoughby, and that's uh, McKinley Community Outreach Center. And, um, and a week from Sunday, uh, we're going to have the McKinley Outreach uh, center's uh, truck out in the parking lot. If you wanna bring some things that people who are lower income can't afford, things like toilet paper, paper towels, laundry detergent, dish de uh, uh, detergent, that type of thing. Um, let's try to restock some of their shelves. That, I think that's a practical way that we can help um, those individuals. And we're partnering with uh, a, a wonderful a wonderful outreach that uh, has been doing that now for 
gosh, about eight years now they've been at it. So, um, well, that's my thoughts tonight. Do you have thoughts that you want to bring up before we close our time? Questions? I have, I have a quick question for you about um, McKinley. Do yeah. they, I cleaned out some drawers and I have a ton of those personal size toiletries that you get at hotels and oh, yeah. whatnot. Will they take those? I'm sure they will. Um, you know, I think that some of those things they might package uh, in with other things. What they were doing there for a while was kind of a drive-through pickup of certain yeah. things. Uh, so maybe those things might not be sitting out on a shelf. They are starting to let some people back into the building now that can walk through some of those rooms. So my answer, Shelly, is they probably can, but they might okay. they might package it in such a way that it's not going to sit on a shelf, but okay. it might begin with some other stuff um, that's handed out. Okay. That's my guess. I, I, Only Beth Morgan would be able to answer that. See, uh, yeah. Okay. So a couple of quick comments, thoughts. Um, part of it, I think, is, you know, Obviously, when you get into the larger scale, like you were talking about the healthcare system, that, that's, that's a serious problem, problems we have to deal with. But I think on, on a personal basis, you know, I, it's in some sense, favorite, I think part of human nature um, and just part of the, the human interaction dynamic, you're, I think there's just a tendency there that there's some people you're going to favor. Not, and I'm not talking about favoritism because you expect to get something back. It's just you're going to connect better with certain people maybe because it's mutually respectful or something. But I mean, for example, just in teaching for many, many years in the classroom, I think, you know, not, not that I favor kids and give them a better grade, but I think there's just certain, so just certain students who, certain kids who you favor, you know, you've heard of teacher's pets and all that, and other ones who, whatever, for whatever reason, and maybe it's, maybe it's two-way street, that you don't, that, that don't have quite that, is it, a matter, is it a matter of potential that you see in them, Bud? Do you, is that is that playing? I, I, I think it's just it's just the way we all are with different people. You know, particularly once you get to know them a little bit, you get to know their personality. They get to know you. There's just certain times you make a, you make more of a connection, and I think you're then more likely to, in different ways, favor that student. Not I mean giving them a better grade. I just in a fair way, but you know what I'm saying. Maybe they engage more in more in class or something but i think part of this the, the favoritism part part of that dynamic on a personal scale is is, is based on, on on the way you connect with different people the other thing is it may be you know depending on how you view man's evolution over many many millions you know thousands of millions of years that that favoritism you know was developed somewhat intrinsically in people to survive better yeah you know that that to, 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 to get along and to make it work you know, and particularly if you were trying to support your family and and do better, that was part of the game. You know what I'm saying? Now, yeah, right. you know, it became part of man's nature. Now you can say it's part of sin nature based on what James is saying, but the reality is I'm not sure I believe that. I think it just may have been part of the way man changed. And I mean, if you believe in some sense of evolution over time, that became part of the survival um, component of, man, of man's behavior, if you see what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, survival of the fittest in the sense yeah. that, you know, 
that we needed to do what we needed. And now it's gotten out of hand, obviously, today. Yeah. But uh, no, I agree yeah. with you about the. So, there are certain people that we connect. It gets complicated. Pick them and scale it up, obviously. Yeah. I agree with you. I think there are people that we connect with better than Keep other friends. people. But if that then is a tendency for us to ignore other people simply because I like this other people better, then then that's might be where favoritism creeps in. And and it, let's face it, as a professor, uh, you like certain students maybe more than others. The great temptation might be to, especially in certain projects, uh, to go, oh, you know, I'm going to give this individual a better grade because I like them. That might be a, uh, a tendency. Oh, I, 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 I think that can, I mean, I would never do that myself, but I, but I can see, I mean, I, I, it's not exactly liking, it's just more mutual respect. Yeah. It's just, it's just, you froze up there, bud. I don't know if it's on my end or yours, but. Okay. I mean, it could be in a variety of different settings. Not necessarily at a teacher-student relationship. It could be a, a friend, you know, people you know, friends, different neighbors. It could be a, a variety of different interactions where you just, I think in certain, some cases, you connect better with certain people than others. And, and, and if, in, in, in that case, I think it's, it's somewhat natural that you're going to want to want to support them and do things for them, you know, more. Yeah. And I don't mean giving better grades in the class. I just mean, it's just, you know, you know, just, just speaking generally. Yeah. And I, and I guess that is also a part of the other side of human nature is when you see two other people connecting and there are certain opportunities that their friendship uh, provides for them, it's then easy for other people that are on the outside looking in on that to get a bit envious of it or jealous of it. And there's that side of pot potentially then saying, well, this individual, you know, they only favor a certain type of individual, you know, right. what am I, you know, am I top <laughs> liver or something, you know, that type of thing. So, um, I think you're right. I, that is a human tendency. But I think James, more than anything here in its context, is talking about an assembly, a, a church, a synagogue, uh, places like that where there's the opportunity to show uh, respect, love, acceptance, you know, there is a tendency within churches many times to be a bit cliquish, you know, and um, and if there are individuals that come in, because that's the example that he gives, uh, one might be accepted while the other is kind of ignored. And I think maybe that's the most practical application for us as a church is to go, no, no one should be overlooked. Yeah. You know, no one should be ignored. Um, so I, I think that's important, it, it, you know, and not yeah. come across as though we show favoritism to certain people and, and not others. So other thoughts mm -hmm. before we close up? If not, that's where we'll 
close for tonight. And um, thanks for being a part of the Bible study tonight. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Good night.